a dream that one day we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. The Historian's Magazine Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Historian's Magazine Podcast, the podcast where we bring history to you in an accessible way from some of the world's most exciting historians. The Historian's Magazine Podcast is produced and presented by Past and Present Media, the home of accessible history. Hello and welcome back to the Historian's Magazine Podcast. I am your brand new host, Jackson Van Uden, and... In this episode, my granddad interviews me about my upcoming article in the Historian's Magazine Motorsport Edition, and I talk to my granddad all about the different history that he enjoys and the history that he's witnessed. Now, personally, I know I'm a little bit biased, but this is one of my favourite episodes that I've ever recorded, and I really hope that you guys enjoy it half as much as I enjoyed creating and recording this episode with my granddad. Now, without further ado... We will jump into supporting messages and then you will hear from myself and my granddad. Thank you. Now here at the Historian's Magazine, we love hearing and learning about history that isn't often touched upon in history textbooks or in traditional history media. And one place that we love to go and learn about this kind of history is the past podcast with Veronica Fortune. Now past is the podcast about those who would never rule. So if you've ever been curious about why women couldn't inherit the throne of France or how the Hundred Years' War started, this is the show for you. Now, Veronica covers the almost kings and queens of history and the reasons why they would never rule, which is an amazing idea, and I really think you're going to enjoy it. So that is The Past Podcast, P-A-S-S-E-D, The Past Podcast. Now, I know you're fascinated by history because you are listening to the Historian's Magazine podcast. But are you interested in the history of art and culture? Do you want to learn more about works of art, famous artists, or exciting archaeological discoveries? If you do, do you want to learn about it through free quality art history content? If that is something that appeals to you, look no further than Accessible Art History, the podcast. This is a weekly podcast where it explores all of these topics and so much more in such an accessible and entertaining way. The goal of this podcast and accessible art history is to provide history, knowledge, content and fun whilst learning. Now you can listen to this podcast and download it through any major podcast player, be that Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whatever you listen to your podcast on. So that is Accessible Art History, the podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Historian's Magazine and welcome to Series 3. This is the first episode of Series 3. It's a very special one for me as I, your host, Jackson, will be talking to my granddad uh, all about my up and and coming article in the Historian's Magazine. Are you okay, granddad? Uh, Fine. Uh, Good afternoon. (laughs) This is your first podcast, isn't it? It is. Very much podcast. I've done Zoom. I've done all sorts of things. I've done Teams, but never, ever done a a podcast. I'm really looking forward to doing a podcast with you. I've been really excited ever since I asked you to do it. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be really excited when it's finished. (laughs) (laughs) 
So granddad <laughs> is going to share this with all his friends uh, back home and they're going to think he's famous. So I'm going to have to make sure this is a good podcast for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so thank you very, thank you very much. Okay. So I'm ready for questions now if you are. Oh, ready, ready for questions. Well, you sent me an article um, about Enzo Ferrari and I, I, I actually read it. I've never been a total fan of F1 because I used to sit there and watch them whip round on the on the television and think, well, I don't, I haven't a clue who they who they are. But having read your your article, um, I actually wondered what sort of a character he was. How did he get on with with people that he worked with? And and generally because I've worked in management for years and years and years, wondered what his management style was. <laughs> So Enzo was a a bit of an autocrat. Uh, he liked things either his way or the highway. Uh, and he, he'd make it very difficult for people to try and get their own way within his organisation because he had built Ferrari up from the ground up. Um, he'd obviously lost uh, his first racing company, Scuderia Ferrari, um, to Alfa Romeo. So when he finally had the opportunity to manage something himself, you can imagine he was quite autocratic about it. Um, He also liked to pit people against one another. So he thought that was the best way to get something out of an individual for them to be improved. But it of sometimes it kind of exploded in fireworks in the organization, in the team, but he even labeled himself an agitator of men. Uh, So he was aware that he he would like to pit people up against one another, and he was a bit autocratic. But yeah, yeah. I don't think I'd want to yeah. work for him. <laughs> uh, well, in my experience, I've actually worked for a couple of chief execs that were very much like that. So I, I can understand where uh, Enzo was actually um, coming from. Uh, there, it, it it doesn't help staff either. I could say that. Um, the, the other question I'd got was, um, he said he was a a tester. I didn't know what a tester was to start with, um, and a racing driver. And I wondered how we actually got into the sport, and, and you know how we developed um, the sport whilst he was there. So he started off watching uh, races when he was young with his his dad and his older brother, and they died during World War. One, but when he came back from World War One, he kind of got a job as a, a test driver, uh, and was eventually picked up by Alfa Romeo, and then became a a racing driver for Alfa Romeo. Um, so that's kind of how his interest in motorsport came about, and how he became a test driver. It was just something that happened when he came back from the war. Yeah. Okay. Um, he. I, I just want to sort of follow on from that question. Uh, did he have any formal training? And obviously not from what you, what what you're saying. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a bit difficult to kind of say how how he got the training. Um, so when he became a race director of Alfa Romeo, he had he had had a lot of experience driving cars, but also working with engine engineers. So as a test driver, he had you know apparently had a remarkable ability of feel for a car so to know if something was up if something needed to be improved but as a racing driver you also know which engineers are the best engineers to help you get those kind of changes that you want done to a car done 
So he kind of picked up this ability as a a good find a scout, a good scout of engineers, and was able to pick up um, engineers who would not only or better Alfa Romeo when he was working there, but ones that would mm. better improve Ferrari when Ferrari came about. Yeah, yeah. Um, he appears to have been um, an entrepreneur uh, during World War Two uh, and the following years. Was he really a a successful businessman, particularly as he seems to have had a checkered career throughout his um, motor racing days. Yeah, he he was a decent racing driver. Uh, he just wasn't one of the top ones, but he had a very good feel for the car. Um, and he promised his wife that when she became pregnant, when she had a first uh, their yeah. first child, he would retire from driving. Um, yeah. But his retirement speech and retirement piece that went into the papers was a very good PR piece. Um, so Enzo was a fantastic PR man uh, and he was able to use this to his benefit to kind of create up a, an image of a good business and you know knowing how he needed to promote his business. Uh, but when he, after the war, when he started his first business, it wasn't allowed to be called Ferrari. Um, Alfa Romeo heard put this kind of um, exit clause on him when he left Alfa Romeo and they said that he can't operate under his name for a certain amount of years after he left. So his first business was called Auto Avio Constructazioni. Uh, I think my Italian's not very good. Uh, <laughs> better, better than mine. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I did do Italian for 12 weeks and all I could do was ask for a cup of tea in the cafe when I went there. <laughs> That's more than I can do. <laughs> But this this first business, um, it made car parts and machine parts. Um, and during World War II, he had to make German-designed parts. Mm. So he was benefiting from a war effort in an Axis country. Um, but also as a businessman, he also had his pretty existing relationships from when he was a, a director from Alfa Romeo. So he was able to kind of lean on previous relationships or relations of former clients to create a successful business so one of the best one of the first early things for him when he was at auto avio was that the son of one of his former drivers at alfa romeo uh, antonio ascari uh, his son was alberto ascari asked ferrari to build him a car to go and compete in the mille Miglie. Yeah. um and that was the first car he made at aav uh, or AAC, and then that was kind of the route for Ferrari. But I think a lot of that early success came from relationships and clients that he previously had at Alfa Romeo that mm. trusted him as a a businessman. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I noted in you in your sort of uh, in your article that in order to finance his motor racing, he started to manufacture. Uh, cars for the general public. You'd, you'd obviously got to be well off um, to afford to, to, Do you think this was of dire necessity or something he welcomed? Was he happy uh, under those circumstances? So I don't think he was particularly happy that he was mm. selling cars to go on the road, but the cost of competing in motorsport was rising. And, yeah. you know, as more regulations came in, um, Abby Williams got an article about the evolution of F1 in the next edition. Um, so you can see from that article how the regulations push the costs up. Mm. 
he needed a way to to finance his his racing unit beyond sponsorship because sponsorship obviously wasn't going to cover the costs mm. um so i think he he kind of reluctantly went into selling cars for the public but um you know he'd previously sold cars to privateer races and amateur races so that side of the business was still there but they were they were still they were racing these cars um and to to kind of change his cars for the road he you know he he took his cars to several coach builders but when coach builders built the body they were all slightly different uh, and he wasn't happy about that either so that he ended up having to choose one single coach builder one single person who created the car so that all the cars were similar so even when he started selling cars he wasn't particularly happy about how they were how they were really and then wasn't particularly happy about having to sell them but obviously yeah. it had some kind of success because that cash injection helped ferrari go on and, and win uh yeah. world championships later on mm. Mm. um uh, Enzo seems to attract, uh, looking at your report, uh, that um, some very outstanding uh, racing drivers over the years. What drew them to Ferrari? Was it the quality of the cars, the speed or the support teams or the organisation um, it, it itself? It's it's a difficult one, really, to say what attracts a driver to Ferrari. Um, you know, it is, one, it is the oldest team in F1 at the moment or longest association with f1 so part of people wanting to join the team is the team itself so you know being being able to be associated with ferrari to be able to play a part in their history as a team that certainly is a big driver for a lot of drivers to want to join ferrari you know um and and a lot of drivers as well have grown up having watched their hero drive for ferrari so drivers like Schumacher, Prost and Lauda have all, all mm. drive driven for Ferrari. And Sebastian Vettel, um, his heroes, you know, Nigel Mansell was one of his heroes, uh, and Schumacher was one of his heroes. One of the one of the reasons that he cited for wanting to join Ferrari when he did, I think it was uh, 2015, 20 Yeah, it must have been 2015, off the top of my head. Uh, or around that time, I can't remember off the top of my head anyway. Um he cited that he wanted to be involved with Ferrari and and the history and and the fact that his heroes are driven for the team was one of the reasons why he wanted to join it. So, I think I think the team itself is one of the big reasons. But also in F one, it's a it's a competitive sport, mm. and when when a team is performing well, drivers are more likely to want to join Ferrari. Um, so, you know, Hamilton and Verstappen. They currently they haven't driven for Ferrari, partially because their teams are performing or have performed exceptionally well. So there's been no reason to leave their team to join Ferrari, um, and especially you know during these two periods of success, Ferrari hasn't been particularly good. Um, but th- those two drivers have also um, said that they wanted to join Ferrari themselves because of the history. So I think a mix of wanting to join Ferrari is wanting to be involved in that team wanting to be involved in its its history and wanting to be associated with it but also because of the performances of that team 
Um, you, you mentioned that, and you really touched on the, the, the next question. And the next question is, um, as a team, Ferrari have not won a championship since uh, two, 2008. Uh, and in view of the sort of what appears to be a general poor performance, what do you think the future holds for uh, Ferrari? Yeah, for, uh, I'm a Ferrari fan. You know that anyway. Um, but it's it's been... It's not been particularly great. So in 2007, Kimi Raikkonen won the World Championship. In 2008, they won the, the World Championship after Massa came very close of winning it. He was, I think he was World Champion for like 10 seconds. Um, but since then, you know, with regulation changes, they've not performed very well, um, mainly due to the internal structures of that team. Um, often, they, they mess up their strategy. Often, they have... Um, they have been liberal. I don't think it was called cheating by the FIA, but they were they were found to be very liberal with the laws of the the rules of the sport, and they got punished for it. Um, and they've just created bad cars. Um, so it it's been a combination of those things ever since two thousand eight that stopped them from winning, even though they've got close at times. Um, I think if they if the upper management of the Ferrari car company or the Ferrari overall company stop meddling in the, the affairs of the racing team when they have no knowledge of racing, mm. then their fortunes might get better. It might improve. But also when the Ferrari strategists learn to listen to their drivers and, and learn how to do a proper strategy, Ferrari might be better. Uh, part of the reason why Charles Leclerc, who drives for Ferrari now, lost last year's championship to Max Verstappen is Ferrari made some very weird and stupid strategy calls. And Charles Leclerc got very frustrated when the car wasn't as good as it should have been. I think last weekend in Spain, Charles, so Ferrari went to pit Charles Leclerc and they said, oh, we're going to put you on the hard tyre, which is, so as the tyres go up, the rubber gets harder and harder. Um, and they last longer. They said to Charles Leclerc, "We're going to put you in the hard tire." And he said, "No, I want to be on the soft tire." And he went into the pits. And then, when he couldn't change his, he couldn't say no. They said, "We're going to put you on the hard tire." So, even when your driver is telling you that the tire doesn't work, and you don't listen to him, I think you're going to continue yeah. to have poor performances because you're not driving a car. So, yeah, yeah. I, I think what you're really saying is the. The, the future currently does not look too bright. They've got obviously got some internal problems to uh, um, to sort out, and we're back on the management issues again, aren't yeah. we? Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind something. of on a knife edge. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's interesting. I uh, I don't think they can, they won't win this year. Max is going to win this year easily, uh, yeah. and if Red Bull carry on the same way, Ferrari won't win until twenty twenty six when the new rules come in. God, that's a long time, Jack. <laughs> yes, I, I think they know it's a long time as well, which isn't good. It's a long time. That is a really long time. <laughs> well, I'll say thanks for uh, sort of uh, enlightening me on um, on Ferrari for a person that's never really followed um, F F one racing. And I suppose next time I put it on television, I'll probably have a closer look at it to see. Uh, <laughs> well, see it's the red one. It's the it's red the one. Red one isn't it? Well, I know Ferraris are red. 
<laughs> I'm not that naive, Jackson. I, I do know that. Bit. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that is a good time for us to take our break. And then yeah. I will ask you some questions on the other hand, Grandad. Yeah. That's all right. Yeah. Yeah. Be gentle with me because I'm. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Jackson. All right. If you enjoy the sound of my voice, and I really hope you do because you are listening to the Historians Magazine podcast, I think you'll really enjoy the History of Jackson podcast. The History of Jackson podcast brings up-to-date historical research to you from historians, authors and researchers in an accessible and digestible way that strips away the academic jargon that none of us understand and focuses on the history at the root of the episode. So if that's something that appeals to you and you want to learn more about up-to-date historical research, head to the History of Jackson podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That is the History of Jackson podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Now, obviously, you love historical content because you are listening to the Historians Magazine podcast. But if you need some more historical content in your life or if you're a history writer or budding history writer looking to start your historical content creator journey, then I have the perfect place for you, and that is thehistorycorner.org or the History Corner blog, as they're known on Instagram. And this is the perfect place for creative people to find a hub for historical writing or those who love living history or photography to find ways to collaborate with the community. So that is thehistorycorner.org and the History Corner blog on Instagram. Great place for contributors and authors to start their historical content creation journey. That is thehistorycorner.org or the History Corner blog on Instagram. So thank you for coming back after the ad break. And now we are going to ask Grandad some questions. Back to him. Um, so, Grandad. Which yeah. one person from history would you bring forward into the modern world and why? Yeah, I I, I, I thought about this one because there are so, so many people. As you know, I'm, I'm as interested in history as, as what, what you are. Um, uh, and you read loads and loads, of, loads and loads of books. And you also know that um, um, I like science. Um, very interested in science. In fact, in fact, your grandma said I should have been a scientist rather than a a local government officer <laughs> in the in the past. But it's a bit late for, um, for that. Um, I came up with three um, three names, um, but I'll obviously plump for one at the end because that's what you've asked me. But the three yeah. names I came up with was Galileo um, again because very interested in science. Uh, so was he. He was an astronomer, a physicist, an, an, an engineer. Um, and in a way, he changed uh, the world um, as as it was at that particular time. Uh, the other one I, was um, Leonardo da Vinci. Very, very similar, great thinker, um, a scientist, um, again, a physicist, an engineer, uh, all sorts of things and, and saw in some ways far into the future and came out with all sorts of um, of, of designs. Um, 
but the, the one I've actually gone for, which probably won't surprise you, um, because um, I've read the First World War, the Second World War, uh, and all the ones that followed. So I, I, I'd, I'd actually bring back um, Winston Churchill. It might might seem strange because I I used to watch Winston Churchill um, on on the television and listen to him on the radio um, many years ago, and this and despite his his failings, he he wasn't a great peacetime prime minister, and particularly later on because of his failing health, which. Um, was never really re- reported at, at the time. He was still the prime minister, and uh, and everyone thought he was uh, doing a doing a job. But he wasn't a great um, peacetime prime minister, but he was certainly a great wartime uh, leader. He, that, you know, they say, "Cometh the hour, cometh the man," and and certainly at the time, Winston Churchill was that man. He had to find his way through. Um. But he was also a a great historian. I mean, I, I read his book, the uh, or books, the history of the English-speaking people, or is it peoples? I can't remember what it is. I can't but, remember anymore. No, I can't. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and a great book. I mean, he wrote that during his wilderness years, as well as his paintings. Um, and and the book is a a great study of uh, of the history of English people uh, and the impact that they had uh, on the world. I also read his book, uh, which I think is called um, World War II. Uh, and there were 12, 12 volumes of that. Um, and some of these, a lot of the stuff in there is he produces memos and his letters uh, that he wrote to people during the uh, during the Second World War and the, the, the run-up to the Second World War, urging people to do this and, and, and not uh, not being happy on the progress of various things and making uh, making um, suggestions for them to uh, uh, to follow through. So he really drove through um, at a very difficult time um, for for Britain uh, and the uh, the empire as it was uh, in in those days i know towards the latter end of the the war he was sidelined by roosevelt and stalin because the the balance of power um was was shifting and um i think he felt that i think i think when i i read um his feelings about that i mean even at the conference at, at Yalta, I think it was Yalta, um, he wanted to speak to Roosevelt and Roosevelt ignored him and he spoke to uh, to Stalin and Stalin and Roosevelt were having secret meetings and Church- <laughs> Churchill <laughs> uh, didn't know. And there was an argument about where um, Churchill wanted, I think, wanted to be in the middle room between the two of them. So he knew he knew when they were when they were colluding, I suppose. To be. So yeah he had his he had his faults he was not particularly liked um by no. what we've termed the work the working class uh, he certainly he certainly had his his faults there and if you go back to the the 1920s and stuff like that when he was um 
uh, a, a politician. He, he, you know, he he got his problems. But I think when you look at the the world today or the state of the world today, uh, and you ask where are the statesmen, where are the strong the strong people, uh, when quite clearly there's strong leadership that's actually needed now. And, and um, you, you sort of throw your hands up and think, where is it? Where are these? Where are they? Uh, and you can't really put your hand on heart and say, well, there's, there's, you know, there's not one man or woman that's going to, uh, to really stand out. And say with Churchill, um, if he came back, I think it might be a, a totally different um, ball game. He still have his opposition. <laughs> yeah. Still, it's, it's, it, I mean, I think he did did actually cross the floor at one stage because he fell out, he fell out with one one political party. Um, but he was a strong he was a strong character, um, and I think certainly in this day and age, that's perhaps what um, uh, what we needed. So of the three I've, I've put forward, I, I could go on about Leonardo da Vinci and I could say yeah. uh, uh, Garibaldi. Um, not Garibaldi, that's the not wrong Gar- one. He's the, Itali- <laughs> he's, he's, the, he's, the, he's the Italian politician. Yeah. I, um, so, um, so, so yeah, yeah. I, I, in the end, I, I'd sort of say Winston Churchill, um, mainly because of his strong leadership um, uh, and because it's it's somebody that um uh when i was a child uh, was there and very prominent i actually also remember uh watching the his funeral on television and i think it's the first time i've actually seen a a, a proper state funeral and i think he was the only politician that's ever been given a um a, a state uh, state funeral yeah, that's so it, that's. It, I like that. I like that answer of Churchill, and he was your and he was your yeah. first prime minister as well. Um, was he my first prime minister? Yes, he was. Uh, there's been quite a lot since, obviously. Yeah. But <laughs> and and recently we've had more prime ministers than uh, yeah. than that we've had in a little bit. So, but but yeah, I I think. Um, Churchill, for those those reasons, I, I think it, that's a certainly worthwhile man to uh, uh, to bring back. Okay, and now I'm going to ask you the reverse. So, if you were to go back in time to any historical event or era, which would it be and why? Yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I, again, it, it's my science background is it, it, is coming back back here um, I'd, I'd love to go back before the beginning of the universe and watch it uh, suddenly pop into existence or was there anything be uh before that um i have read loads and loads of science books and i, I read stephen hawking and 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 um what's he called a brief history of time um and it, that's one of those books that tries to explain everything but when you you read first two pages and you think yes i understand that and then you read the next two pages and you think <laughs> no i better i better go back to the first two pages because i really don't understand <laughs> i really don't understand where um where is is um, it it's coming from um the so that that's one but but you know it, it no real hos- historical base behind that other than curiosity um i'd I'd got the other one was the um the first world war okay and Um, why uh, the first world war yeah why um 
think mainly I'd like to understand why it all happened. Uh, I mean, I've I've read the books about the First World War and and different books, and and it's almost as if you could see um, with hindsight, you'd you'd see where it where it was going, and you wonder why didn't anybody else spot that. at, um, at the time, I'd like to understand how um, what the reaction was of of of, um, of ordinary people. You know, as as you know, your great great—I've got to get this right. I've, yeah. My, my <laughs> I'll do it the I'll do it the easy way. My um, grandfather's uh, went. Uh, went off to war uh, in the First World War, uh, and neither of them came back. So you think, um, what were they like? Because I, you know, you you have the advantage. You have two grandfathers and two grandmothers, and you know exactly what yeah. they're like. Um, I had no no grandfathers. Um, all you, uh, in fact, my mother when her uh, father was killed in the first world war was at the age of three and she has absolutely no recollection of of her uh, her father um and my my dad uh was in the similar situation he's got absolutely no recollection um I, i i've got no you know what were their what were their feelings you know were they were they called up did they volunteer um, I don't know that. Did they? Uh, because there was a lot of jingoism at, at the time. You see the newsreels, and everyone's yeah. marching off, and you know the war's going to be over by Christmas. Um, and it went on for four years, and fifty plus million um, uh, were, were killed. So, what did the ordinary people think about it? Were they sort of um, were, were they caught up in the nationalism that was around at the time you know we we're british empire and we're, we're going to do this i can't for the life of me uh, think that they you know if they if they joined up or were they called up they would have wanted to come back because uh, my what you know one grandfather had a daughter of uh, three years old uh, and the other one had got um he got what three three children four children um and he never he never saw them again did they did they understand what it was all about so you know so i'd yeah. like to go back i'd like to go back with a book that was written about the first world war and say you know read yeah. about this <laughs> uh, read about this so so to go back to the first world war the the impact that it had on my family and your family. I mean, you, yeah. you're far distant from it now, but um, but I um, I wasn't. I once asked my mother about her dad, and all she did is went upstairs and cried her eyes out. Um, yeah. So you'd like to go if you could change history. You 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 may well want to uh, change something like uh, like that. Yeah. I think I've been quite lucky that you have made sure that all of us 
Um, so even me and my brothers and our cousins yeah. know about our family history and know what yeah. our family have done. And I suppose I was probably the luckiest out of all um, yeah. all your grandchildren because I I have more yeah. memory of great grandparents. Yeah. Um, so I remember yeah. them and I remember yeah. little things that they told me and yeah. the things that you've told me about them. So, yeah, yeah, I think that's, yeah. you know, yeah. I think a lot I, of us I, take I, granted I, that. I, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I, as you know, I, I was into family history as, uh, as well, and, and um, um, I, I think the view should, you should always take, um, you know, as a younger person, is is talk to the older ones because once they've gone, that information, that knowledge, um, has all gone. I mean, if you talk to your grandma, and she will tell you about her dad and and his. Um, service in the far east and i know i've printed off i've sort of copied onto a disc all the stuff that he he did when he was in the far east um, so you've retained all that and and you know you pass that on so you know go back in time i'd like to go back before just before the first world yeah. war i mean you know you you could see uh when i was at school they, they the history lessons consisted of um the first world war and I know that um, being at the history lesson didn't really mean much to me because what would I, I was 11, 12, 13 at, at, at the time. So it didn't mean an awful lot. And it's, it's only when you start to uh, look at it proper. I hadn't realized that the local church that I'd been going to for years as a uh, as a as a young lad, there, there was a huge plaque on the wall um, with all the uh, service personnel uh, that were killed in the First World War. And until somebody said, "By the way, by the way, Jim," as they called me, and still do, um, your name's on that. Your <laughs> name is on is on that uh, that huge plaque. And yeah, it was. Um, and that was my. Uh, that that was that was my granddad. That was my phone, by the way. Just that's ignore. all right. I know that <laughs> notification. <laughs> so yeah, you could go back and and you you know you teach the politicians or say to the politicians, look, this is not, this is you know, th- there's got to be a, a a different way. We've got the similar situation with uh, with Russia yeah. and the Ukraine at the moment, and got exactly the same or appeared to have exactly the same circumstances that we had. Uh, prior to you know, from 1933 onwards, and and going back to the um, the First World War prior to um, prior to that, so I'll go back. Yeah, First World War. I think that's a really good answer. I quite like that one. Yeah, <laughs> you've liked everyone so far. You yeah, might not I, I always <laughs> I always like talking about history of you. So <laughs> my my last question is which is the most interesting historical event that you have witnessed or been part of yeah right but the, again I, I i like the i like the the number three so i i've, I've got three and then I, yeah. I, I i came down with uh with with the three um and uh yeah witness all three of these um but being being long in the tooth jackson you yeah. know i would um, I, I remember the Falklands War incredibly well um, because it was the really the, for me it was the the first one where the news the news um, reporters were were there the television cameras were there um, but I you know that was 
that was one of the ones I, because I remember the the reports of the ships being sunk by the Exocet missiles, which were manufactured by the French. <laughs> but we won't go into we won't go no. Into that. <laughs> we, won't, we won't go into that now. <laughs> um, the, the other one was the um, the Suez uh, crisis. I think that was the first uh, the, the first time that the um, British government realised that they didn't wield the power that they used to prior to the uh, the, the, the the Second World War. Um, but the one that had uh, a real impact because I. I saw it personally and, and was in some extent, because I worked for a local authority, I was involved in it, um, was the miners' strike in, uh, uh, I think it was 1984. There'd been a few strikes in the, in the 70s, but it was uh, a 19, uh, 1984. And the reason I remember it, um, because living in, Nottinghamshire, if you remember the um, the National Union of Mine Workers declared a, the strike, and um, all the areas except Nottinghamshire uh, went on strike. And in in Nottinghamshire, in particular, um, some miners went on strike, and some uh, and and some didn't, and that led to the creation of the Union of Democratic. Mine workers, I think it was called. <clears throat> so, and the reason I remember it was because if you tried to get out of Nottinghamshire, you were stopped by the police. Wherever you went, you get to the Nottinghamshire border or certainly near the coal fields, uh, and you were stopped. If you tried to get into Nottinghamshire, you were stopped, uh, and you were asked where where you were going and and and. Uh, who you were, um, the, so the pits were were working, but they were they were picketed. Uh, I remember um, where I live, and you know exactly where I live. Yeah. There used to be um, Linby Colliery, uh, and that was working. And I remember one day I'd got uh, uh, your your mother and her brother, who were quite tiny in nineteen. 1984 and we were walking down uh, this quite wide footpath and, and then there was this um, I should say throng of um, Yorkshire miners who, who'd found obviously been tipped off by some of the Nottinghamshire miners who were striking that um, this is the way you get to the back entrance of, of, of Limby Colliery to, to, to blockade this end and um, as I was walking I, I sort of pulled both both children close to me, uh, because there were a lot of them, and they needed to be. Um, in some respects, I was probably protecting them, but pulling them on one side so that these twenty or thirty Yorkshire miners could actually get past. And one of the uh, Yorkshire miners says, "Look," he said, "Look, mate, we're not we're not ogres." And I said, "No, I know, but there's a lot of you." And then they just went on their. Uh, uh, on their way to uh, to pick it the, um, the 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 mine. So the mine was continually working uh, all the time. And I, I made I made a few notes because I you know it's when you think about these things. I got it. It was about pit closures was one of them. Yeah. Um, 
job loss, foreign imports. Um, and I have to say, at some stage, it, it felt, particularly when the, um, the the Yorkshire miners and the Durham miners, etc., uh, were picketing around here, because Not- Nottinghamshire in those days was um, was very much mining. Uh, you know, it was heavy industry. There were thousands of, of um, men in <coughs> men in particular were employed uh, by uh, by the coal board. In fact, the pit across the road, which is now gone, it's got houses yeah. on it now. But um, there were three thousand miners were there. Um, and then, uh, sort of a, a mile down the road, there was another two pits, and there was another three thousand um, miners down there. So, um, and the fact that they were all being blockaded, the fact that the police had the uh, uh, the vans with the grills in front of the uh, uh, in front of the windscreens to to um, protect them, and the and the police were all in in uh, in, in riot gear, uh, and the fact that. Um, you couldn't go out of the out of the county without having to explain uh, who you are, and then again, from you know the local authority experience they had was um, setting up the the soup kitchens for the striking mine <coughs> striking miners in the area who couldn't actually because it went on for weeks and weeks um, couldn't afford to to buy food, so you you know you were making arrangements to make sure that. You know their their kids were being fed, and and the the impact on the communities, and certainly some of the pit villages, uh, when all the pits did close, was absolutely devastating. Yeah, you know it was. Um, what do you do with three thousand miners at this pit, three thousand miners at, at at the other pit? It just everything um, just went, and obviously lots of businesses that relied. On the coal fields, the railways that relied on the on on the coal fields um, gradually um, shut down. Uh, the other thing that um, I, I you know I got personal experience of this. I knew of uh, one family whose father did not strike, and the son who did. Um, and I, you know, the last time I spoke to him is a few years ago now, yeah. but they were still not talking. And and even now, uh, sometimes you'll get, you know, he was a scab. I know you're not supposed to use words like that, but that's what they said. He was a scab. In other words, he went to work and and uh, and I wasn't. And I, when I worked at the local authority, we'd got uh, some of the uh, members were sponsored by the the NUM uh, and were on strike, and some others that um, joined the UDM didn't go on, you know, didn't go on strike and and actually went. To, went to work as as normal, didn't help any. It didn't help any sort of community uh, relationships. <clears throat> it was absolutely tragic, um, you know what happened. And I suppose, yeah, it happened, and all the mines closed. Absolutely, Nottinghamshire, same as Derbyshire and and Yorkshire, were were um, were devastated by the closure of of the mines, and it's taken. 20, 30, 40 odd years to uh, uh, to build the economies up, and some of the pit villages have not, you know, still not recovered. So when you yeah. when you walk round and you, um, uh, you, you, as you know, I do a lot of hiking, and, yeah, and, and I've done a lot of hiking in Derbyshire and, and sort of North Knots, 
all, all you see is the uh, the headstocks. There's there's some headstocks at the moment in the, a former colliery at Clipston. Now they're still there. So there's a big argument as to whether they should whether they should whether they should <laughs> knock them down or or leave them there as a you know uh, for for history. I I I, I went down. I, I've been down the the pit, as we used to say, about twice. Yeah. Um, on on a on a visit. Now I tell you what, it's dirty, it's dangerous. Um. Uh, yeah. You yeah. you you know you wouldn't you really wouldn't want to work down no. down there. I'm but. I'm very glad that I don't have to go down somewhere like that, and I'm yeah. I'm a soft handed man. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but, so, but, but, yeah. Your, your, your. Uh, my, my father, uh, when he left school, um, they went down the mines. He was fourteen. He used to leave leave school at at, at fourteen, um, and um, he said to me many times, "Do not go down the mines." Um, now, I was uh, when I was at school. I actually left school at, at fifteen. Um, and um, I was in class in the last year, and one of the teachers actually said, "Have you all got jobs?" And I think I was the only one that hadn't actually got a job to go to because I, I knew what I wanted to do, and it certainly wasn't going down the mine. Yeah. Um, but it, it was a boys' school. They didn't used to let girls and boys mix in those days. <laughs> in those days, actually. <laughs> um, uh, so he said, "You know, where are you? Where are you going to work?" And they all. Um, I think every every boy in that class, and there'd be about thirty five, um, they were either going into engineering associated with the mining industry, or Rolls Royce, because Rolls Royce was very predominant yeah. in those days, um, or down the local pit. Uh, and and I was the only one. And he said, "What are you doing? Going to do?" And I said, "Well, I I, I want to um i want to go into low government because i want to change all this <laughs> i want to change all this <laughs> so so yeah it, it the minor strike was for the area for this area because i yeah i can only speak for this area uh it was catastrophic i um, i only know about that period from from you and from what i've read um so it's yeah. always very interesting listening to you talk about it and and then your role in local government yeah. um I like learning from you, so it's it's always yeah, good to hear. Yeah, well, it, it's a it, it was um, a, a, a catastrophic time, and it was also I don't know whether I've used the words yet, uh, uh, but it was almost like verging on on a, a civil war because it got certainly in the the sort of um, uh, South Yorkshire coalfield, lot of rioting. Um, I actually dug some figures that. Uh, Eleven thousand two hundred ninety-one miners were were arrested, um, obviously for violent behaviour. Yeah. Or, or, yeah, that's quite a lot. That it, is quite it's, a lot. It's quite a lot. And I, I think that of those, uh, I, I think something like eight thousand were actually prosecuted. Um, and but unfortunately, there were six deaths. Um. So it it yeah it got pretty 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 violent at times um, and particularly um, I don't think um, uh, your mother and uh, her brother 
would remember much ab- about that. And they certainly wouldn't remember me shielding them as 20 or 30 Yorkshire miners. I, I, <laughs> I, I, am, I, I am not touching that topic um, <laughs> at all. I, I value <laughs> I value not being told off. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> Well, before you get me in more trouble, <laughs> yeah, go on then. thank you very much for coming on, Grandad. I've really had a good time. <laughs> we, we'll um, no doubt renew uh, the, yeah. the discussion. At some, I hope I've I hope I've been uh, useful to you, and I hope it's been enjoyable for for your uh, for your followers. I, I've, I've certainly had a good time, so I'm sure all the listeners of the podcast would have absolutely loved this episode and learned a lot from you. Um, is there anything, Grandad, you'd like to, to mention or uh, encourage people to go and learn or any causes that you want people to go and look at um, just as we sign off? Um, uh, no, you, you'll, be, you'll be interested to know that, that your... Uh, no, your niece is it robin yeah yeah um no not she, my niece she, she's my cousin cousin my, that's yeah. it cousin sorry yeah, cousin she she's been asked to study the second world war at, at school and, and you've just given me a book to have a look at yeah. <laughs> the, the the second the second world war so she'll be quite really interested that um so no jackson it's been uh, for my first podcast and probably my last (laughs) (laughs) i I thank you very much for the uh, the the experience i will not share my experience with with all my friends and colleagues in case they uh, in case they have a look at it (laughs) well i'm sure they'll enjoy it when they do watch it well thank you very much randad thank you very much you guys for listening If you want to support us here at The Historian's Magazine, support the content that we create, please consider subscribing to the magazine, becoming a member of the magazine at thehistoriansmagazine.com. Or if you'd like to have an ad-free experience, consider subscribing or joining Past and Present Plus uh, so you can enhance your listening experience without adverts. So thank you very much, and I'll talk to all of you guys next episode.